The first reading is from Numbers chapter 21, verses 4 through 9. From Mount Hor they set out by the way to the Red Sea to go around the land of Edom. And the people became impatient on the way. And the people spoke against God and against Moses. Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there is no food and no water, and we loathe this worthless food. Then the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people so that many people of Israel died. And the people came to Moses and said, We have sinned, for we have spoken against the Lord and against you. Pray to the Lord that he takes away the serpents from us. So Moses prayed for the people, and the Lord said to Moses, Make a fiery serpent and set it on a pole, and everyone who is bitten shall look at it and live. So Moses made a bronze serpent and set it on a pole. And if a serpent bit someone, that person would look at the bronze serpent and live. Ezekiel chapter 36, verses 22 to 27. Therefore say to the house of Israel, Thus says the Lord God, It is not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I am about to act, but for the sake of my holy name, which you have profaned among the nations to which you came. And I will vindicate the holiness of my great name, which has been profaned among the nations, and which you have profaned among them. And the nations will know that I am the Lord, declares the Lord God, when through you I vindicate my holiness before their eyes. I will take you from the nations and gather you from all the countries and bring you into your own land. I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleannesses, and from all your idols I will cleanse you. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. The Gospel of John, um, John chapter 3, verse 1 to 15. The Lord be with you. The Holy Gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ according to John. Glory to you, Lord Jesus Christ. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these things that you do apart from the presence of God. Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, no one can see the kingdom of God without being born from above. Nicodemus said to him, how can anyone be born after growing old, grown old? Can one enter a second time into the mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, no one can enter the kingdom of God without being born of water and spirit. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes. And you hear it sound, but you do not know where it comes or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Nicodemus said to him, 
How can these things be? Jesus answered him, Are you the teacher of Israel, and yet you do not understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. If I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except the one who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. The Gospel of Christ. Praise to you, Lord Jesus Christ. As I begin, let's bow our heads in a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word through which you speak to us, reveal yourself to us. So I pray in light of that truth that I as preacher would just get out of the way. There'd be far, far less of me, far, far more of you. That your people gathered virtually would be edified and your son Jesus glorified. For we ask this in his name. Amen. I'm a really big fan of M. Night Shalaman as a movie director. You may have seen some of his films. He's directed the likes of Signs, The Village, The Sixth Sense. And one of the things I really appreciate about his filmmaking is that you almost have two movies in one. You'll have this wonderful story of intrigue and mystery and suspense with great plot and character development, and you think you know what the film is all about. And then usually right near the end, by way of a revolution or a, a revelation, you as the audience are brought into a larger story in which this story fits that changes everything. Your perspective of the plot, the characters, the script has all got to change in light of that revelation. And the film sticks with you for days as you're trying to figure it all out. As I was preparing prayerfully for this sermon this morning, I had a bit of an M. Night Shalaman moment, a piece of the narrative that I'd never seen before that took a story that I thought I knew, a conversation I thought I understood, a message I thought I'd received, and changed everything. And I'm still trying to figure it all out. You see, I was formed, discipled as a follower of Jesus like many of us in the West, into a Christianity that said the primary purpose of Jesus' coming is to assure you of a heavenly future so that when you die, you can be assured of an eternal destiny. And John 3, this conversation between Nicodemus and Jesus was utilized to bring that truth home. Nicodemus comes to Jesus Intrigued by who he might be. And Jesus takes charge of the conversation. Nicodemus, you should really be concerned about your eternal destiny. Kingdom of God, eternal life kind of things. And I've heard countless sermons on this text. Preached sermons on this text with the driving line. Like Nicodemus the Pharisee, don't count on your goodness, your righteousness, your theological understanding, your works to save you. Salvation is by grace through faith, the renewing work of the Spirit. Got that? Well, now you can be assured of your eternal destiny. But what if that is not at all what this conversation is about? 
What if the conversation is as earthly as it is heavenly, as material as it is spiritual, as temporal as it is eternal? So if you have your Bible handy, I'll invite you to turn to John chapter 3 as we look at this conversation together. Now, in many ways, how we have heard this conversation in the past all hinges on Nicodemus' opening line not being all that consequential to the conversation. Perhaps a little bit of buttering Jesus up before he gets to the true meat, the true reason for his coming. But what if his opening line was what the conversation was all about? We know, says Nicodemus, that you are a teacher from God. And how does he know this? Well, he tells us, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Nicodemus is saying, the reason that I'm coming to you tonight has everything to do with the signs that you're doing. Signs? Well, what signs? Well, John has only recorded two so far. Water turned to wine at Cana and the cleansing of the temple. Now, the water turned to wine was a private sign that only his disciples and the servants knew anything about. So it can't be that one. The only sign that we're left with then is the cleansing of the temple. Now, why would that be a sign that would bring Nicodemus to Jesus? Wouldn't he be kind of grumpy about that as a religious leader? Let me put it this way. Which of us has not looked out on our world this past year and not yearned for something different? Healing, peace, justice, freedom, equality. As followers of Jesus, we yearn for that with very specific language. We pray for it weekly. Thy kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. In that prayer, we're yearning for a future where our world would be shot through with the beauty, glory, and love of God, where peace, justice, equality would reign, where there is shalom, full flourishing in every aspect of life, where heaven and earth are united. And as a Pharisee, a religious teacher, Nicodemus would have been steeped in those scriptural promises. But as a Jew... He would have been yearning for that with some national specificity. The land returned, a Jewish king sitting upon the throne, and and the temple cleansed, true worship reinstituted. Now, for eight days this past December, Jewish people around the world celebrated, as they have done for millennia, the Feast of Hanukkah. And what is that a feast of? A temple cleansing. It remembers a moment some 200 years before this conversation between Nicodemus and Jesus, where Israel was under foreign rule, their people oppressed, their temple defiled with pagan idols, and Judas Maccabees leads a successful revolution. And one of the defining moments of that revolution He enters the temple. He tears down the pagan idols. The temple is cleansed. They find one jar of undefiled oil for the menorah, which miraculously lasts for eight days. Hanukkah celebrates a temple cleansing, a successful revolution. In fact, Jewish history is punctuated by moments of revolution against foreign rule, all including... You guessed it, 
a temple cleansing. Israel is once more under foreign rule, oppressed by the Romans, their temple defiled by pagan images, stirring up national yearning for freedom, freedom, peace, justice. It's the feast of Passover, a feast that celebrates freedom from slavery and oppression. It's a feast where all of the people of Israel would come to the city for it was a pilgrimage feast and in full view of everyone, Jesus cleanses the temple. That sign, that cleansing of the temple by his own admission is what brings Nicodemus to Jesus that night. Does that not change the entire nature of the conversation? And who was Nicodemus? Well, John gives us an incredible amount of detail. He was a Pharisee. For us, we often perceive them as the antagonists of the story, and not so in their culture. They were some of the most highly respected people. He was a ruler, a member of the 70-member Sanhedrin, the Jewish Supreme Court. In verse 10, we discover that he's not only a religious teacher, he is the religious teacher. He is the primary religious authority in the Jewish faith at that time. Later in John, we hear about his incredible wealth. And some of the commentators point out that his name gives us an indication that he was from a family of national heroes. There would be no one in all of Israel with greater wealth, power, influence, reputation than Nicodemus. And he's having a meeting at night with someone he perceives to be a revolutionary. This is the kind of conversation that if the wrong people found out about would get you executed. A conversation he expects would spark armed rebellion. A Jewish king seizing the throne. This is the conversation that could spark revolution. And it did. Just not the kind of revolution Nicodemus went into that conversation expecting. And Jesus answers him right on topic. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, they cannot see the kingdom of God. In other words, Nicodemus, I can see your yearning for kingdom. I can see that you have a clear sense of what that kingdom involves, particularly for Israel. I can see that you're coming to me thinking that I have a part to play in your nationalistic aspirations. You say that you can see, but you don't see a thing. Let me ask you a question. What's wrong with our world? Well, it's those people and those structures and this problem and that leader and those policies and that ignorance. What's wrong with that relationship? It's not me, it's them. If they would just stop doing and stop saying and be a little more or be a little less, it's not me, it's them. Nicodemus, what's wrong with the world? What's wrong with Israel? Oh, it's those Romans. We need to get them out. A Jewish king upon the throne, a return to undefiled worship of the temple, revolution. No, no, says Jesus. Unless one is born again, they will not see the kingdom of God. 
In other words, what's the problem with the world, Nicodemus? What's the problem with Israel, Nicodemus? You are. The problem is you. What's the problem with our world? You are. I am. What's the problem with that relationship? Not them, you. Me. One preacher put it this way. If you placed in front of a lion a piece of meat or a bowl of oatmeal, what's the lion going to choose? You've placed that choice in front of them a thousand times, piece of meat, bowl of oatmeal, what are they going to choose? Each and every time, they're going to choose the meat, right? Why? She's carnivorous. It's part of her nature. The Bible, Jesus' picture of humanity is that if you placed in front of us a choice to serve self or to serve God and others. If you put a thousand such choices in front of us to serve self or to serve God and others, we would choose every single time to serve self. Why? Because it's our very nature. That's not to say that we won't be good or loving or serve others or religious. We do that all the time. It's simply to say that we will choose those things because we believe that they're in our best interest. What's wrong with the world? You are. I am. So what is needed? An entirely new nature. You must be born again. Let's say you have an apple tree in your backyard. And you're getting a little sick of apples year after year. You've run out of good recipes for it. So you think to yourself, I'd rather in future years have something savory. I I think I'd like some olives from that tree. You know a little bit about gardening and you've heard that fertilizer impacts the fruit that comes from trees. And so the next growing season, you put copious amounts of fertilizer on that tree. Are you going to get olives? No. Just going to get bigger apples. Well, that didn't work, so the next non-growing season, you do a little bit of research and you find out that pruning impacts the fruit that comes from trees, and so next growing season, you prune that tree back. Are you going to get olives? No. You're simply going to get more apples. The only way that you're going to get olives from that tree is if you ripped up that apple tree, roots and all, and planted an entirely new tree. A new tree is required to produce new fruit. What's wrong with the world? You are. I am. And what is needed? Not education to stem the tide of ignorance, not a shot of spirituality or self-discipline, not a movement of our political commitments, not a revolution to get rid of the problems out there. No, no, says Jesus. You need an entirely new nature. You must be born again. It was John Calvin who said that born again is not the amendment of a part, it's the renewal of the whole. Does that crush you? Or does that give you hope? See, this message comes to the Nicodemuses of the world and is often rejected. Because their wealth, their power, status, reputation, education, their goodness tells them they're okay. They're what's right with the world. As one put it, all you need to receive Jesus' message here is nothing. And most of us don't have nothing. 
This message has historically come to the downtrodden, those who lack wealth, position, power, goodness, influence. People to whom the world says, you're not okay, you're what's wrong with the world. It's received as a message of incredible hope. For it says, nothing in my life can ever disqualify me, nothing I lack can ever bar me. You must be born again. And Nicodemus, he's confused as we would be, right? Verse 4, how does that work, Jesus? Could a man go back into his mother's womb? And Jesus responds to his confusion the way any of us would to the confusion of another. We would restate it in a way that we would think they could understand. Verse 5, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. What does it mean to be born again, Nicodemus? It means to be born of water and the Spirit. And I think that pretty much clears it up, right? The commentators are just as confused as Nicodemus. Well, this probably means uh, natural birth, to be born through water, amniotic fluid, followed by spiritual rebirth, conversion. Others say Jesus is saying we need two kinds of baptisms, a water baptism for the forgiveness of sins and a spiritual baptism, the fullness of the Spirit. But I think that simply is reading later Christian debate back into the text. For in response to Nicodemus's continued confusion, verse 10, Jesus says, how can you be the teacher of Israel and not understand this? In other words, as someone immersed in the scriptures, having memorized them word for word, you should know something of what I'm telling you. You see in Ezekiel 36, one of the first readings Corley read for us, both water and spirit are clearly referenced. As the prophet looks forward to a time when God himself will sprinkle water on his people, cleansing them from their sin, giving them his spirit that will melt their hearts, change and transform them to live into an entirely new humanity. And Jesus says that time is now. In me, through me. And how will he bring that about? He tells us in his final verse. As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up. That whoever believes in him may have eternal life, sin-cleansed, spirit empowering them to live an entirely new way. That's one of the oddest and most obscure references that Jesus ever makes. He's pointing Jesus, or he's pointing Nicodemus rather, back to an incident from Numbers 21. Israel's been rescued from slavery in Egypt. They're wandering through the desert. They're complaining against God and Moses. Oh, we had it better in Egypt. Why did you bring us out here? We've got no food, we've got no water, and the food you send us is awful. And God responds in discipline, in judgment. He sends snakes into the camp. It has the desired effect. They come to Moses and say, we've sinned against God and we've sinned against you. Pray to God on our behalf that he might remove the snakes. And Moses prays and God tells him, fashion a bronze serpent, lift it up on a pole. Anyone who's been bitten can look in that snake and they can be healed. And that's the end of the story. As Moses lifted up the snake, says Jesus, I will be lifted up. And every time that phrase lifted up is used in the Gospel of John, it refers to Jesus being lifted up on a cross. What the heck is he talking about? I think he's saying 
see the connection between Moses lifting up the snake and me being lifted up on the cross. And you'll be cleansed from your sin and empowered by my spirit. See the connection, you'll be born again. See the connection, you'll have an entirely new nature. What could possibly be the connection between those two things? Perhaps it is this. What's the problem the Israelites are facing? It's the snakes, right? What's the solution that God gives them to that problem? Also a snake. Their problem and their solution are one and the same. What does God send as a solution to our problem? It's a son of God in human form. What then is our problem? We look at the cross and we see it. It's our very humanity. What was God's judgment upon the sin of the Israelites? It was the snake. What was the nature of their salvation, the means of their healing, the power to new life? Also the snake. The means of their judgment was also the means of their salvation. I think the connection we're meant to see is this. See me. The Son of Man lifted up on the cross. See the reality that your humanity is your primary problem. See your humanity being judged in me, dying in me, and trust in me, believe in me, and you'll be born again, cleansed from sin, my spirit empowering you to live into an entirely new humanity. Now, how could that possibly lead to an entirely new nature? I don't know. It's a mystery. I can't explain it. Before we think of that as a cop-out or a sidestepping of a difficult question, that's actually how Jesus responds. Verse 8, the wind blows where it wishes and you hear its sound. You don't know where it comes from or where it's going. So it is with everyone who's born of the Spirit. Perhaps Jesus and Nicodemus are on the roof of the house They're feeling the wind on their cheeks. They're seeing the wind move the palm branches. They can hear it rustling through the leaves. How does the new birth come about, says Jesus? Like the wind, it's a mystery. Ancient peoples didn't experience the wind and say, oh, that's a sign of a high over the Arabian desert, a low over the Mediterranean. The wind is a mystery. But you can see, you can feel, you can hear the results. The new birth is a mystery, but you can see, you can feel, you can hear the results. Did Nicodemus let go of his desire for armed revolution and pick up instead the deeper revolution of an entirely new nature? We certainly don't have any explicit reference, but we can make inference. Right after Jesus' death in John 19, Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus go to the Roman governor asking for permission to take down Jesus' body. To align himself with Jesus would have taken incredible courage. He would risk losing everything. He and Joseph take the body down. They would have wiped the blood and the grime away. They would have wrapped his body in cloth. That was something that no man in that culture would do. That was a job for slaves, for women. The text tells us that he provided 75 pounds of myrrh and aloe. And some have estimated that would be the modern equivalent of some $150,000 to $200,000 worth of precious spices. Here's a man who would stand with Jesus in the face of incredible cost. He 
Here's a man who's been enabled to lay down male pride, class pride, cultural pride, to step into doing something that no man in his culture would ever do. Here's a man whose wealth has no grip on his heart, but lays it down lavishly to honor Jesus. Like the wind, the new birth is a mystery, but you can see, you can feel, you can hear its results. St. Augustine, before he was converted, was essentially a sex addict. After rebirth, he was traveling and came to a town where he'd had an ongoing sexual relationship with a woman. She saw him there on the street and came up to him and began to talk with him. And he was kind and he was courteous, but he was different. He, He said goodbye and began to go on his way. And She was confused by the interaction and thought, well, maybe he doesn't recognize me. And so she called out after him, Augustine, it is I. He turned around and he said, I know, but it is not I. Like the wind, the new birth's a mystery, but you can see, you can feel, you can hear its results. This past summer, I read the obituary of Cicely Saunders, the founder of the modern hospice movement in England. She was a nurse who, after her parents' divorce, had a radical conversion, experienced rebirth. About the same time, she fell in love with a dying man, and their conversations around his bedside were of love, of God, and of the care of the dying. See, in the 1940s, those who were dying were considered considered medical failures, and the doctors just gave up on them. Pain relief was only given when it was already unbearable. There was no sense of holistic care for the dying where there would be continuous pain relief given so that they could spend their last days in peace and comfort around those that they loved. And what she saw stirred up in her a dream a dream to open up a facility dedicated to the care of the dying, a place where worship was central, where the truth of the resurrection could be an anchor for both patient and caregiver. Her dream became contagious. Funds were raised, and in 1967, St. Christopher's Hospice opened to patients. It soon became a center of teaching and research because there was nothing like it in all of England. And it sparked the modern hospice movement that spread at astonishing speed. Like the wind, the new birth's a mystery, but you can see, you can feel, you can hear its results. Priorities change, loves change, goals change, joys change, convictions change, appetites change. Have you looked to Jesus and received the gift of new birth? Have you received that new birth, but the signs of it seem to have been in the past? Have you received that new birth, but long to see, to feel, to hear the results? There are no appeals I can make to inspire you, no application I can give to bring it forth, no nugget of biblical truth I can impart to lock it in. I can only point you where Jesus pointed Nicodemus. See me lift it up. See that your primary problem is your humanity. You are the problem with the world. See that you need an entirely new nature, not the amendment of a part, but the renewal of a whole. And see your humanity being judged in me, dying in me, 
and believing, trusting in me. Be cleansed of your sin and power by my spirit. How does that lead to a new nature? Like the wind, it's a mystery. But you will see, you will feel, you will hear the results. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, in the next few days, we will move into the season of Lent, a time where we deliberately turn our attention to your journey to the cross. And we pray this Lent that we would indeed see you lifted up, see the glory, the exaltation of the cross, that seeing you lifted up, we would believe, we would trust, and receive the cleansing of our sins and the gift of the Spirit to renew us, to enable us to live into an entirely new humanity. For we pray it to your glory alone. Amen. You've just listened to a podcast from Little Trinity Church in Toronto. Please check out our website at www.littletrinity.org to find out more about our ministries and services.